All right, good evening and welcome to our Bible study. We're continuing with our study in 2 Peter. We're entitling this series, Growing in Grace and Truth. Uh, if you're following along in our notes, which are available at our website at new-life-ministries.org, we're on page 21 of the outline. And if you've missed any of the previous studies, both the notes and the audio recordings should be available there. And uh, hopefully that will be a help and a blessing to you. We have now come to section E at the bottom of page 21, if you are following along in those notes. And we've begun to look into chapter 2 of Second Peter. And this entire chapter is devoted to the topic of false prophets and false teachers. And as we've been mentioning in previous weeks, this is a very prevalent theme in both, both the Old and New Testaments. And we would wish and hope that this weren't a prominent theme in the New Testament, but it is. And we've seen how in Paul's writings, in John's writings, and now in Peter's writings, it seems to play a very important role in what they had to say to the church. And I think it's important to keep mentioning this second epistle of Peter was written at the very end of Peter's life. And these were essentially his last words to the church. And I place a lot of weight on a man or a woman's final words. He knew this was his last chance to address the church. And he could have written about many things, but the majority of this second letter is actually contained in this second chapter, which deals with the problem of false leaders and false teachers. And it seems almost every week now we're hearing about a new scandal, some church leader who's been caught in adultery or uh, some sort of perversion or corruption. And it's very sad, but it's also very real. And we need to be prepared for these things because Jesus and the apostles have warned us that not only are these things going to be happening in the last days, but they're going to be increasing and it is a sign of the times. One of the things Jesus said to look for in preparation for his return was there will be many false Christs, many false prophets, and sadly, they will deceive many. And we saw last time, uh, and we're continuing in our look at the first three verses of Second Peter chapter 2, let me just read this whole section again to get us going. He says, They, and in context, that's the false teachers of the New Testament era, not false prophets from the Old Testament. They, the false teachers, will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the sovereign Lord who bought them, bringing swift destruction on themselves. Many 
will follow their shameful ways and will bring the way of truth into disrepute. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. We saw in our last session that the way in which these false teachers and false prophets operate is to secretly sneak into the ranks of the Christian believers and quietly and secretly begin to introduce what are called destructive or damnable heresies. And we saw that these are teachings that actually lead to eternal loss or damnation, a very serious matter. And the end result of these kinds of teachings is to try to draw other people into their ruin and into their eternal loss and damnation. And make no mistake, what awaits these false teachers and false prophets is eternal damnation. And we saw that that same term is used a little further on here to refer to their swift destruction. Um, It's one thing for a person to sin or to fall into error. It's quite another when they lead and actively recruit others into their deception and error. And that's what these people do. They're not content to be deceived, they deceive others. They're not content to be preparing themselves for eternal damnation and destruction. They want to bring as many others into that destruction as they can. And as I've mentioned previously, the first word in verse 2 is what is perhaps the most troubling to me about this whole topic. Many will follow their shameful ways. And it's amazing uh, some of the false teachers and false prophets that we hear about, they are almost laughable except for the fact that they have very broad and very wide followings. And while I was in Florida this past weekend, I was hearing yet again about some other false leader who's claiming to be Jesus and has uh, multiplied thousands of followers and radio and internet and TV and God knows what all. Many follow their shameful ways. And I want to pick it up here tonight in verse 2 with the next part of verse 2. It says, many will follow their shameful ways, and they will bring the way of truth into disrepute. This is very important for you and me to understand, and if you've been around for any length of time, I'm sure you've had the experience that I've had, where you're trying to share the gospel with someone, and the very first thing they bring up is some church scandal, some church leader who has 
fallen either through immorality or corruption or pride or something else. There were two more in the headlines today. And it makes it very difficult for us to share the gospel with people because, as this verse indicates, they bring the way of truth into disrepute. Literally, it means they cause the way of truth to be blasphemed. What we're doing is giving opportunity to atheists, unbelievers, and enemies of the truth to be able to blaspheme God, blaspheme the church, and blaspheme the truth. Let me read to you this verse in the Amplified Bible. It says, Because of them, that's the false teachers, the true way will be maligned and defamed. And, you know, we're so sad when we hear about these scandals, but it goes way beyond that. It affects the gospel. It affects our ability to be able to present the gospel to others because now the enemy has planted all of these things into people's minds and it's like a stumbling block that keeps them from coming to faith. And the Message Bible says these false teachers give the way of truth a bad name. There's a headline in the news these past few days. A prominent pastor, I forget where, it might be in Alabama, who has AIDS has been having sexual relations with a number of members in his church. And it is feared, of course, that he has now transmitted the AIDS virus to the members of his congregation. I mean, it just doesn't get any worse than this. They are giving the way of truth a bad name. And let me read to you a passage of Scripture that seems to go right along with this thought. It's found in Romans 2, verses 21 to 24. Romans 2, 21 to 24. Paul says, You then, who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who brag about the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? As it is written, God's name is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. So when a preacher stands up and pounds his fist on the pulpit Sunday after Sunday and says, you shouldn't be stealing, and he's robbing money from the church. Or he pounds his fist on the pulpit and says, you shouldn't be committing adultery. All adulterers are going to go to hell. And he's having a sexual affair with the church secretary, ends up divorcing his wife, and marries a secretary who's half his age. These things 
cause God's name and God's truth to be blasphemed. And that's why this whole matter is so serious and it's becoming more and more prevalent and more and more of an issue in our day as we see more and more moral failures in so-called spiritual leaders who are teaching and preaching one thing and living something quite the opposite. Such hypocrites and false leaders do great harm, not only to their followers, but to unbelievers who are outside of the church, maybe who might have been interested in hearing the gospel and possibly even ready to convert and give their lives to Jesus Christ, but these hypocrites and false leaders are what the Bible calls stumbling blocks. There are, they bring offense to the name of God and to the gospel. The next thing it says about false teachers is in verse 3 of 2 Peter 2, in their greed these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up in their greed. False teachers, and we're going to see this again further along in 2 Peter 2, one of the most common and obvious fruits is they are greedy. Remember we saw in Matthew 7:15, Jesus said, you'll recognize false prophets and false teachers, not by their gifts, not by the size of their megachurch, not by how smooth a preacher or a speaker they are. You will recognize them by their fruits. Look at the fruits in their life. Don't be taken up with the size of their megachurch. means nothing at all how big a church they have, how many millions of dollars their corporation is worth. It means nothing at all. Look at the fruits of their lives. And I tell you, this is one of the best fruits to look for. If they're greedy for money, if they're doing a variety of things, but the chief end, the chief goal of their activity is to gain money, I guarantee you they're false. One of the most common denominators in every false leader I've ever known about is follow the money. And if you listen to their speech, remember out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, if they're always talking about money, if every decision that they make in their ministry is centered around money, the bottom line, watch out, run for your life. And I want to read another passage that really highlights this in 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, verses 3 to 11. Listen carefully here. If anyone teaches false doctrines, stop right there. Paul's talking about false teachers. He's 
talking about those who teach false doctrines. If anyone teaches false doctrines and does not agree to the sound instruction of our Lord Jesus Christ and to godly teaching, he is conceited and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy interest in controversies and quarrels about words that result in envy, strife, malicious talk, evil suspicions, and constant friction between men of corrupt mind who have been robbed of the truth, and listen carefully, and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. False teachers, false prophets, use, or I should actually say abuse, their ministry office, thinking that they can gain financially from it. They think that godliness is a means to financial gain. But godliness with contentment is great gain, Paul says. Verse 7 of 1 Peter 6. I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 6. For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Listen carefully to verse 9. People who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Remember, he's talking about false teachers, those who teach false doctrines. Some people, and I believe he's referring to the same people, false teachers, some people eager for money, and this confirms what we studied last time, they have wandered from the faith. You can't wander from something unless you started off in it. They were in the faith, but because of their love for money, they were eager for money, they wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. But you, man of God, he's talking to Timothy, and he's talking to you and me, flee from all this. False teachers are greedy for money. And I would say, and I don't have numbers to prove this, but just off the top of my head, I would say nine out of ten times, if you follow the money, that alone will reveal to you whether or not they're a false prophet, a false teacher, or a true servant of God. Listen to what they talk about, and because if they're talking all the time about money, and if the real goal of their ministry is financial gain, my advice to you 
is run for your life. Flee. That's what Paul tells Timothy to do. Run away from this. Godliness is not a means to financial gain. Godliness is the goal. Godliness is the gain. It's not money. And sadly, very often, God gives spiritual gifts to people. Maybe the gift of healing, working miracles, word of knowledge. And these are miracles that attract crowds. People are dazzled by prophecy and people who seem to be able to read minds and read fortunes. And there's a great temptation to begin to use that gift, that miraculous power, to gain financially. And many a man, many a woman has ended up in disgrace and as Paul says here, pierced themselves with many griefs, abusing that gift and misusing it to try to gain financially from people. Now let me read again what Peter says. I'm going to read the whole statement again. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. Sometimes I'm amazed at how gullible Christians are and how quick we are to fall for every kind of lie and story that's made up fictitious tales that these money mongers peddle. They exploit gullible people with lies and fictitious tales. The word exploit there is a very strong Greek word that means to peddle, to trade, to buy and sell, or to make merchandise of. In this case, they're peddling or trying to sell fictitious tales, made-up stories to gullible people who end up becoming their merchandise. And, you know, I am so tired of seeing the you know, mass mailings from these guys, their appeals on Christian radio and Christian TV, you know, just send a love gift for a hundred dollars or more and you're gonna get multiplied a hundredfold. Well, the only one that gets multiplied a hundredfold is the false prophet or the false teacher. And they're scamming the body of Christ. They're scamming gullible listeners and gullible Christians. They're being exploited or they're being made merchandise of. And Paul was very clear about this that in his ministry he did not do this with the Word of God. And let me read 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 17 And I want you to notice again the word many here. 
2 Corinthians 2, verse 17. He says, Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. Already in Paul's day, there were many who were running around peddling the Word of God, using the ministry of the Word of God to make merchandise of people. And I think we've all heard the stories of the so-called prophets who come into town, they get invited to speak in a church, and they dazzle everyone with their miraculous powers, and then they form the lines. There's the $10,000 line, the $1,000 line, the $100 line, and finally the last line for the poor folks. I'm not making this stuff up. I know people who have actually been in meetings like this. If you line up in the $10,000 line, you can even use your MasterCard or Visa. And for a donation of $10,000, you get a $10,000 prophecy from the so-called man of God. Or if you're in the second line, you get a $1,000 prophecy and so forth. How can people be so, and pardon my French, stupid? How can Christians be so gullible to fall for this nonsense? These are not prophets. They're peddlers. They're exploiting the church. They're exploiting the body of Christ. And where is the shepherd? Where is the man of God who's watching over that flock? He should stand up and yank that man by the collar and pull him out of the building. Throw him out into the parking lot. We need discernment in these last days. And it would seem that in Paul's day, there were already many such false teachers and false prophets. How can you recognize them? They're peddlers. They exploit the gullible, the simple, the unsuspecting. What are they looking for? They're looking for your money. They're looking for my money. And let me read this again to you. I find this fascinating. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with stories they have made up. I'm not sure what that refers to. It could refer to exaggerated or downright fake testimonies of miracles, lies about the great work they're doing in Africa or in South America or someplace, when in actual fact, all of the money is funneling into their pocket so that they can take expensive vacations and spend your hard-earned money, my hard-earned money, not on helping the poor, not on doing the work of God. They're greedy. With feigned words, with stories they've made up, they deceive many. God help us to have discernment. And I'm not saying every appeal for money 
is necessarily in this category. There are many who have a sincere desire to raise money to help the poor, to send offerings to those in need. I'm not talking about that, but we need to pray that the body of Christ has discernment. And sometimes we need to check these people out to make sure that the money's going where it is supposed to be going. By their fruits, you will recognize them. Jude refers to this group of people in Jude verse 8 as dreamers. They exaggerate. They make up stories. They're dreamers. But their motive is money. I think Paul might have been referring to the same kind of people when he wrote to the Colossians. Let's look at some verses in Colossians chapter 2. I'll read verse 4, verse 8, and verse 18. Colossians 2, verse 4. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. Notice he's writing to the believers so that they won't get deceived. And the audience I'm speaking to tonight, I'm praying that we will also not be deceived. That we will have a discernment and a knowledge of the Word of God and we would listen carefully to the Holy Spirit so that we don't end up being deceived. Notice what he says, by fine-sounding arguments. These people have amazing stories. Fine-sounding testimonies and stories and arguments. Don't be deceived by it. Verse 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. I could go on and on tonight with stories. I'm not going to do that. But I've heard some heart-wrenching stories of good Christian people who have really been taken for a ride by false teachers and false prophets. And let me be clear, these people had dazzling gifts. Oh, they could prophesy, they could give amazing words of knowledge and wisdom, and they made off with multiplied thousands of dollars. I know people personally who have been scammed for thousands. I'm not talking about $10, $20. Thousands of dollars. They used credit cards and all kinds of corrupt practices to get money out of people. Verse 18, Do not let anyone who delights in false humility and the worship of angels disqualify you for the prize. Such a person goes into great detail about what he has seen and his unspiritual mind puffs him up with idle notions. So, summarizing this 
portion. They're greedy. They're masters at telling stories, making up stories, faking testimonies, telling glorious tales to exploit gullible, innocent, unsuspecting people. But verse 3 goes on to remind us of the condemnation, the judgment, and the destruction that awaits these false leaders. Let me read again from verse 3 of 2 Peter 2. In their greed, these teachers will exploit you with teachers with stories, sorry, they have made up. Their condemnation has long been hanging over them, and their destruction has not been sleeping. We touched on this in a previous session, but I want to expand on it now. Although God's judgment for these deceivers, greedy money mongers who abuse spiritual gifts to scam and deceive the unsuspecting, although God seems to let them get away with murder, sometimes for years on end, make no mistake, God is not mocked. God cannot be deceived. You reap what you sow. And I like this statement that Peter makes. God's judgment, though it has been delayed, it is not sleeping. Meaning, it is still very much active, very much alive, awake, and alert. And it's just that God is the one who determines the timing of that ultimate condemnation and destruction. God and His justice never sleep. Nothing escapes His watchful eye. And you know, the Bible says the eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the good and the evil. And Whenever I share that, I can kind of see on people's faces. Some people's faces light up, and they get a big smile on their face. Other people suddenly become very fearful and anxious. Well, if you're doing something that you don't want God's eyes to see, that will, of course, bring great fear and consternation. If you're serving God and doing the things he's called you to do, it brings nothing but joy and comfort to your heart to know that God is seeing you. And many times, we're doing good things that nobody else is noticing, only God is seeing them. And that brings a smile to my face when I'm reminded that God sees all of the things I do. He sees when I fast. He sees when I pray. He sees when I shed tears for lost souls. He sees when I'm up long after everyone else has gone asleep because I want to read a little bit more of His Word. He sees when I make that extra effort to go out in the middle of the night to pray for someone in the hospital 
or make a phone call to encourage a poor widow or somebody who's sick or going through a tough time. God sees, but he also sees what these false teachers and false prophets are up to. <clears throat> and although God sometimes seems to be slow, we're going to learn in 2 Peter chapter 3 that God's slowness doesn't mean he isn't seeing. It's actually just a sign of his patience. And sometimes God is patiently waiting and hoping that these people will come to repentance. Let me read to you a verse from Jude 4 that seems to go along with this thought. Jude 4 and I'm reading from the New American Standard. It says, For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. He says they were long beforehand marked out for condemnation. And again, I don't understand why God allows some of these evil people to keep operating for weeks, months, years, and yes, even decades. And the only thing I can think of is as we read in Revelation 2.21 last time, about that woman Jezebel in the Thyatira church, God was giving her a space of time to repent. A space of time to repent. It's not a space of time to keep on sinning, and it's certainly not a green light to keep on sinning. Quite the contrary, as Romans 2.4 tells us, the goodness of God, the patience, the long-suffering of God is only to lead us and give us time to repent. But sometimes we can misinterpret the delay in God's judgment as a free pass to keep on sinning. There's a very interesting verse that addresses this in Ecclesiastes 8, verse, verse 11. And I'm going to read this from the King James because I think it brings it out the clearest there. Ecclesiastes 8, verse 11. It says, Because a sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, Therefore the heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And I certainly believe our justice system here in America could learn a lot from this verse. Our justice system has basically become a laughing stock. And murderers and perverts and drug pushers know it. They know that they may have years 
long after they've even been sentenced for their crime to enjoy a nice air-conditioned cell in a prison somewhere, maybe even get their law degree while they're in prison, and they even finally get released from prison after literally committing murder. In the Bible, a sentence for a crime was to be executed speedily. Not only for the criminal, but for all the others in the society. Let me read this again. Because a sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the heart of the sons of men... That's not referring to the criminal. That's referring to the rest of the people in the culture. The heart of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. And we really have very weak deterrence now in our criminal justice system for many crimes. I mean, it's really not a big deal to be a drug pusher. They know that. And that's why they continue to do what they're doing. And that's why our young men and young women continue to die at their hands of heroin overdoses, other kinds of drug overdoses. There's no real bite in the sentence. If it were executed speedily, then the rest of the people in society would begin to fear. And coming back to our topic here, these false teachers and false prophets, many times because of God's patience, they're allowed to continue in their evil work for many years before they're finally caught, before they're finally exposed, or before God finally lowers the boom on them. I shared with you one good example of that last time about a prominent false leader who was suddenly stricken and died a year ago. But it was only after deceiving millions of people. This is a this is a scary thing. And the same verse, Ecclesiastes eight eleven, the translation in the Message Bible is quite interesting. Let me read this to you. It says, Because the sentence against evil deeds is so long in coming, people in general think they can get by with murder. Hmm. People in general think they can get by with murder. You know, why not take your chances? If you're a celebrity like O.J. Simpson, you might even get away with a double murder, and all the evidence is there, and you walk free. Thankfully, he is back in prison now, but not for the murders. That's God's goodness and justice, I believe, that finally caught up with the man for another crime. But people get away with murder every day. And sadly, that encourages others, I'll give it a try. Maybe I can get away with it. 
In the next section of Second Peter, and I'm going to introduce this tonight, but we're not going to be able to complete it. In the next section, and it, it ties right in with these first three verses, Peter gives three examples from the Old Testament to show us how no one escapes God's judgment. Keep that in the back of your mind as we go further now. No one escapes God's judgment. You either repent and find God's mercy, or God's judgment will not sleep. It may be delayed, but as we just read here in verse 3, it is not sleeping. Now, let me read... 2 Peter 2, from verse 4 to 9, just to set the stage for where we're going to go in our time remaining tonight, and certainly our next session, and maybe even beyond that. 2 Peter 2, verses 4 to 9. And remember, Peter's purpose for this entire section is to underscore this one thought. No one escapes God's judgment. And he's actually going to give three examples. The angels that sinned, all of the sinners in Noah's day, and all of the perverse sinners who were living in Sodom and Gomorrah. Three examples. Angels that sinned, the evil, corrupt world of Noah's day, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, here we go. 2 Peter 2, from verse 4 to 9. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment, that's example number one, if he did not spare the ancient world when he brought the flood on its ungodly people, but protected Noah, a preacher of righteousness, and seven others. That's example number two. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. Third example, Sodom and Gomorrah. What do all three of these have in common? God did not spare them. He did not spare them. Verse 7, And if he rescued Lot, a righteous man, who was distressed by the filthy lives of lawless men, for that righteous man living among them day after day was tormented in his righteous soul by the lawless deeds he saw and heard. If this is so, then the Lord knows how to rescue godly men from trials and to hold the unrighteous for the day of judgment while continuing their punishment. So, this section is going to use these three examples, angels that fell, Noah and the world that was judged by the flood, 
and finally Lot and the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that were destroyed for their perversion. Two things we learn from these three examples. God will not spare the ungodly. Make no mistake about it. God will judge them. But the other important thing for you and me to glean from this is Noah and seven others were rescued out of that judgment in the ark. There's salvation for those who will turn to God. Lot and his family, they were spared the judgment that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah because they were righteous, because they turned toward the Lord. So, there's hope, there's salvation for those who repent, and there will be no sparing of God's judgment for the unrepentant and for those who continue on in their wickedness and ungodliness. Let's look at this first example briefly, and then we'll continue on with the other two examples in our next session. It says in verse 4, If God did not spare angels when they sinned, but sent them to hell, putting them into gloomy dungeons to be held for judgment. This is an amazing story, and there's not a whole lot in the Bible about it, but there's just enough for us to possibly fill in some of the blanks. Peter is very clear here. There's a group of angels. Angels are created beings. God made angels, just like he made man. God created many angels. There's a group of angels that sinned. And their sin, we'll learn about in a few other passages, is the sin of rebellion. They rebelled against their Creator. They rebelled against God. And as I mentioned, there are only a few passages that say anything about this, and beyond that, we can only speculate. But let me read also to you from Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25 and verse 41. Then he, that's Jesus, will say to those on his left, this is where the sheep and the goats are separated at final judgment. He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Interesting for the devil and his angels. And although it's not really our purpose in this Bible study to go into depth about where Satan came from, it is generally presumed that the description that's given in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28 about the fall of Lucifer... Um, presumed to be 
an angelic being who was given great power, authority, and position in the angelic hierarchy in God's kingdom. He rebelled against God because of pride and was able to seduce a number of other angels into that pride and rebellion which resulted in their sinning. They sinned against God. And Jesus talking about the devil in John 8, he said he sinned from the beginning. So whatever happened to make the devil the devil, there was sin involved. And these angels that Peter refers to, they sinned. And the companion verse that is found in Jude, remember Jude and Second Peter 2 are very similar. Let me read to you Jude 6. And it gives us a little bit more insight into these angels that sinned. It says, the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their own home, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. So beyond that, we don't know a whole lot except that at least part of this group of angels that sinned and rebelled in pride against God, they are locked up now. They're bound in chains. They're being kept in darkness, reserved for the final judgment, the judgment of the great day. And Although Peter and Jude both refer to certain of these angels that are actually locked up in prison now, awaiting their final judgment, there seem to be some others of these angels that are the devil's angels who are still free and roaming about because I find no other way to explain this next passage in Revelation chapter 12, which I believe is prophetic. It's about a future time. In Revelation 12, verses 7 to 9, where there's a war in heaven between the archangel Michael and this group of angels that are on the devil's side. Let's read it. Revelation 12, 7-9. And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon, that's the devil, and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. Again, I don't have time to go into all of Revelation 12 now, but we have studied this at length 
in, in other times. Revelation 12 is future. It is prophetic. It is leading up to the first three and a half years of the tribulation, which I believe begins immediately after the rapture of the church, when the male child is caught up to the throne of God, that group of overcomers that make up the bride of Christ. So, up until that time, you still have both the devil and his angels who are active in heavenly places. And it's only after the rapture that this war between Michael and the good angels and Satan and these fallen angels takes place. Alright, coming back to our real point here, there are angels that sinned. Peter is very adamant, God's not going to spare them. Just because they're angels, don't think they're going to escape the judgment of God. Let me read verse 4 again. If God did not spare angels when they sinned, and I'm going ahead here, no one will be spared from God's judgment who refuses to repent. That's Peter's real purpose in writing this whole section. In this first example that he gives, and in the next two that we'll look at next time, God judges all sin and all godliness even angels when they sinned. And next time we're going to look in detail at the world in Noah's day. No one was spared except those who were in the ark. The third example we'll look at, I think our lawmakers, our politicians, all of the politically correct should really study this one carefully. God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah with fire and brimstone. What was their sin? It was homosexuality. Be very clear about this. God destroyed those cities. And we're seeing a frightening trend here in the United States of America where very soon we will probably have 30 of the 50 states have made it law for so-called gay or homosexual marriage. And it's almost a daily thing now where we hear of greater and grosser sins of perversion and immorality. Make no mistake, God is not asleep. He's not winking. He's not approving. And he certainly will not spare America. He didn't spare angels. He didn't spare the world in Noah's day. He didn't spare Sodom and Gomorrah. Nor will he spare this nation unless we repent. And I, I've been talking about the fact that this was on the horizon. It is now happening in Texas. The city of Houston is requiring every pastor who preaches anything against homosexuality 
to submit their sermons to the government for review. And I've already signed a petition and sent it in to the city of Houston. I would recommend everybody who's listening to this Bible study tonight, I don't have all the information at hand, but I get it to you, go online and sign that petition and let the folks in Houston know that we're not going to tolerate this foolishness. And if we continue to go down this road, trust me, the God who didn't spare angels, the God who didn't spare the world in Noah's day, and the God who burned up Sodom and Gomorrah, he will not spare America either. We must really pray for this country. We must pray for the lawmakers and the politicians to wake up and understand what is going on. Let's pray tonight as we close our Bible study and we'll continue next time looking in more detail at these two examples of Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah. Let us pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we are living in the last days. These are fearful, these are perilous times, but they're all also glorious days because you're raising up your church. You're preparing that Noah generation who has separated itself from the perversion and the filth around us We've gotten into the ark of safety, which is your Son, Jesus Christ, the only way, the only truth, and the only life. God, we praise you that you've made a way of escape. And Lord, we have run to that ark of safety. We have run to your Son, Jesus Christ. We have repented of all of our sins, all of our blindness and bondage and rebellion. And God, if you did not even spare angels when they sinned, if you didn't spare the world in Noah's day, and you did not spare the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah that were totally given over to homosexual sin and shameful immorality, surely you will not spare this nation or any other nation that goes down that road. God Call this nation to its knees. Call this nation back to you in repentance that we would turn from our wicked ways and cry out to the God of heaven for mercy and for cleansing through the blood of Jesus for all of our unrighteousness, for all of our iniquities. God, you are a good God. You're a patient God. You have waited long but let us not take your patience as a green light to go on sinning. But God, you're waiting, giving us space of time to repent. Bring us back to the cross. Bring us back to you in sincerity, in humility, and in repentance. We praise you and we thank you tonight for the precious blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you for so great a salvation. Lord, I pray for each and every one listening to this Bible study tonight that your Holy Spirit would touch our hearts and bring us back to you. Bring us in full surrender, 
in total commitment and devotion to the King of Heaven and to the Kingdom of Heaven. Lord, bless each and every one. Keep each and every one of us now as the apple of your eye. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.